Thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. Um, I heard that Chris has been here two years now. Yes. Now, let me tell you something about Chris that you probably have already discovered. I met Chris, oh, about 18 or 19 years ago. We were in the same presbytery. And at first, I didn't know what, what kind of a person Chris was. I, he was a pastor, I knew, but that's about it. Um, Chris, I, I knew that he was, he's not a real gregarious type, you know, just big personality and just coming all over you. He was very, sometimes quiet, but very um, confident in the Lord. That's the way I would describe him. About six years ago, our interaction became a little bit more close, and I still remember this one conversation I had with Chris. He may have forgotten this, but he asked me, so tell me uh, what I can pray for you about. And then he followed that by saying, and I want to tell you, once you tell me, I'm committed to it. And I thought, wow, that's different. Because a lot of people I've met, me included, all say, what can I pray for you about? And I will remember that for about 45 minutes, <laughs> maybe. But after that, you know, I got so many things. It's not in my RAM anymore. It's in my hard disk. And it's getting harder and harder all the time. But Chris is that kind of a person. What he says, he really means. And, I, I, you know, this is something that I've really been blessed by in my relationship with Chris. He is a man of his word, very sincere. Um, what you see is what you get. So I'm really blessed to, to be in the same covenant group with Chris. Um, let's see if this will work. Oh, great. Awesome. John 13, 34 to 35 says this. Words of Jesus. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If you've been Christian for any length of time, this is not a strange verse. And if you look at it, it's not one of those things you need a, a degree from seminary to try to get the gist of this, these two verses. Love one another. The issue that I see for, for myself, for my church at Wintersburg, and, and possibly for all of you, is not so much understanding this passage, but obeying this passage, doing it. And that's what I want to address this morning. And so I call this commandment not just uh, something that's really good and something we should do and something we should try to do, grow in, but I call this a radical commandment because this commandment is so radical in nature and its impact so powerful. So let me go into this a little bit further. First of all, Jesus said a new commandment. So it's a command. It's not a suggestion. 
It's not something that we put on our church website. It's not just a sign. It's a command from God. And then he makes this really powerful, poignant statement. Love one another. Okay. But then he says, love as I have loved you. That puts an entirely new and radical spin on this commandment. He places a quality control standard on the love that we ought to have for one another. That standard is not so much, you know, I'm going to try to love so-and-so more, or, you know, this person and I don't get along, so I'm going to try my best to maybe thaw the ice and, and grow in my love for that person. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to try. The command is, love as I have loved you. So here's what that means. Raise your hand if you feel you've been loved by Jesus. That's how you ought to love one another. As you have been loved by Jesus, that's the standard that he gives to us with respect to this love. Love in the same way as you have been loved by Jesus. Raise your hand if you've been loved by Jesus even when you've committed sins. Raise your hand if you've been loved by Jesus when you've done hurtful things to God. Raise your hand if you've been loved by Jesus when you have done things that others might consider betrayal. That's the same kind of love that Jesus commands us to share with those around you. Think of someone who has hurt you, someone who has done you wrong, injustice, someone who has really, really sought to even hurt you, and you've been hurt by them. Would you all agree that Jesus would still love that person? That's what Jesus commands us to do. Not a suggestion, not you ought to aspire to this, but a command. Love those around you as you have been loved by me. <clears throat> Loving others is a mark of a true disciple. Now, I've been the pastor a long time, and so I will meet people from time to time who will tell me, yeah, I grew up in the church. I've been a Presbyterian for 50 years, or you know, I, I, my father was a member, my grandfather's a member, and they give me this uh, resume and lineage. And as I listen, I, I sometimes wonder, does this person have a genuine relationship with God through faith in Christ? Because they're giving me the, the resume, you know? I, I did this, and I did this, and my father this, etc. Those are not bad things, but what... Love one another is, besides being a command from Jesus, I believe it's the mark of being a true disciple. John Piper wrote this, To be a disciple is not just be outwardly aligned 
with a Christian church or a Christian movement or a Christian name. But being a Christian is to be miraculously changed by the Spirit into a person with a new heart of love for the Father and for Jesus and for his followers. And love is how you can know this has happened to that person. So loving one another, I believe, is truly the mark of being a Christian. Let me give you some other verses in Scripture that point this out. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. 1 John 3.10 says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 4.8 Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 to 10. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. I think it's pretty evident to love one another, this command, living it out, bears witness that a person is a true follower of Christ. Again, quoting John Piper, when Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He meant love confirms that your profession of faith is real. Implications for this. We all use different measures to determine how mature a person is in Christ. Some people use Bible knowledge. Some people use experience serving. Some people use degrees from seminary. Some people talk about how we serve so faithfully. Those are all good things. But I believe an overlooked measure of maturity in Christ is how we love one another. And remember this. God says, Jesus said, love as we have been loved. So you can't use, I love all these people over here. True, I don't love them, but surely I love more people then I don't love. That's got to amount to something. Can you imagine if Jesus did that to you? I love this much about you, but I hate this part, so I'm going to decide whether or not you can come into heaven. Jesus died for us, warts and all, 
And that's how God expects us to love. You know, it's a powerful testimony, loving one another. And I remember one of the things that impacted me before I became Christian. I grew up in Gardena, not too far away. And in Gardena, we had um, kind of like a strata of who's cool, who's not. And we knew who the cool people were and who are the nerds. And everybody aspired to be in the cool group and definitely stayed away from the nerds. I went to a church, local church in Gardena, and I sat there and said, hmm, let me check out this Christianity stuff, because people have been inviting me. And the thing that impacted me the most was the cool people loving the nerds. I said, this is wrong. You can't do this. Cool people aren't supposed to reach out to these nerds. And I was, my mouth just literally dropped. Not only were they hanging out with each other, not only were they talking with each other, but I saw one of the coolest guys go up to one of the nerdiest guys, and they embraced. And then I saw the cool guy and the nerdy guy praying together. And I said to myself, what is this Christianity that would do something so radical? And that was that, those two people embracing, love one another as they have been loved by Jesus. So let me go to this, the most important part of my sharing. That is, how do we do it? How do we do this? How do we do it? It takes more than a commitment. Yes, that's the most important thing. I will do it. But there's another dynamic, a spiritual dynamic, which is very important. And I'm going to illustrate this to you using some crude symbols. Hopefully, you'll get it. This is kind of like what Jesus is saying. God the Father loves God the Son, Jesus. And because of that, he is able to love us. And because of that, we are able to love others. It's kind of like this overflow of love that because we have been loved, we can love those around us, even those who may be really, really bad. This sounds simple, but it's not. It's radical. Romans 5, 6 to 8 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the love that we are to share with one another is way, way more than being non-combative or not engaging in angry debate. It's way more than being simply cordial and courteous. It's way more than even being kind and smiling once in a while. The kind of love that we are to pour into others is the kind of self-sacrificing love demonstrated by our Lord. This puts an entirely new spin on this radical love. Here's where we get into problems. 
when you hear a message like this, love one another, this is, this is the way it's supposed to work. But this is the way we often do it. What's the difference? It's this cup right there. It's tilted sideways. And that's what happens oftentimes when we hear the command, we're to love one another. We go, okay, that person's a real jerk. <sighs> How can I love that person? I got to really, really think about it and really try hard. And we go, hi. <laughs> God, are you watching? <laughs> I'm really trying here. That might work for a while. But then that person continues to act like a, a jerk. No, you're not a jerk, by the way. <laughs> but then you go, oh, man, how much more can I take? Or a family member who you try to love. And they just act in crazy ways. And you go, I just cannot love this person. But God tells me to love. OK, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Ugh. Oh, man, am I tired. I need to take a vacation after that one. And that's because our cup is tilted sideways. We're using our efforts, our skills, our resources to love. It'll never work. It will not work. There are limitations. And that's what a lot of Christians do. They end up using, when they hear a command to love one another, they, they turn their cup sideways and try to pour out to others using our resources, using some kind of uh, mind over matter, whatever it is, willpower, and it always fails. This will not work. It's supposed to be this way. Okay? So how can we go from that self-effort to something that flows, where we flow out God's love. Let me give you one concrete way you can do it. And that's this. Humility. When we humble ourselves, then we can receive God's love in a genuine way. And that then can flow out to others and you are then empowered to love even the people who are unlovable. You are able to love while we were yet sinners. God died for the ungodly. You would be able to love even the ungodly if we grow in our humility. Let me just share with you how we can do that. Cultivating a heart of humility. Here are some concrete steps. One, confession. Confession of your sins. Certainly to God, but also to one another. That's a risky one, you know? Because you're going, if I tell that person this sin, they might use it against me. Oh, no way, man. i got to protect myself. I understand. And I'm not advocating you just go out there and post on your Facebook all your sins every night. I'm <laughs> not advocating that. But there is a dynamic. That fear that arises because we think someone's going to use it against us, that is an indicator that there could be some issues with pride. Okay. Confession to God and to one another definitely cultivates humility. I, I know at church, we have a pretty big staff. And one day, 
they, um, I wouldn't call it a coup, <laughs> but they said, you know, Fred, we have these issues um, with you. And I said, what issues? I'm always nice. <laughs> and they said, no, we have some issues. And they told me some things. I could have responded by saying, you're wrong. Here's why. Or, I'm the executive pastor. You must do as I say, or otherwise, there's the door. I could have done that. But God, by his grace, chose me to accept what they had said. And um, the staff people told me, they said, you know, the way you responded to us was so awesome. You taught us what it is to receive criticism with humility. I wasn't really trying to do that. I was just going, all right, God, may your grace cover me. But humility goes such, or confession, even admitting to my staff, yep, you're right, you're right, you're right, went a long ways towards me having this heart of humility. Then these are the others. Forgive and be forgiven. Think about the people who've hurt you. Forgive them. And also ask for forgiveness from those you've hurt. This will also cultivate humility. Avoid self-fulfillment as a fuel for service. You know, a lot of times as Christians, we serve, but there is not this pure motive to glorify God. We serve because it makes us feel good. Understandable. There's nothing wrong with that, but don't make that your primary fuel source. Because if you do that, humility will not grow in your heart. And then lastly, cultivate humility nurturing relationships. And that means people, cultivating relationships with people whom, who you may not always see eye to eye, people who may get on your nerves once in a while. I had this one person who would come over our house, and I thought, oh my gosh, he's here. Uh, Mary, you know, Mary's my wife. I said, Mary, I got stuff to do upstairs. I would retreat to the study because he would sit there and just talk and talk, and then he would repeat himself three or four times, and it would get on my nerves after a while, so I would say, Mary, you handle it, and I would go up there. I was deeply convicted by God. Just because the person doesn't push my buttons, just because the person's conversation doesn't stimulate me, there's no rationale for me to act in that way. I missed out on a great opportunity to cultivate humility in my heart. Whereas my wife, who would sit there and listen to the same story over and over and over again, she was blessed. She said, I said, how can you stand listening to the same story that you heard about 12 times already? And she said, Fred, I think about him. Then I can listen. And I said, oh, that's a good point. I'm thinking about me, right? How that, those storytelling just gets on my nerves. But that's how you cultivate humility. So last thing I'm going to say. Imagine John 13, 34, 35, this radical manifestation in your church, how it would impact your worship. People are worshiping God 
because of the overflow that they feel from God, the love that they would feel, experience, just covering them. And then this overflowing to others, not just your best buds, not just people your age, not just people you get along with, but overflowing to one another. It would be so awesome. And no doubt about it, that would affect your koinonia. Also impact your family relationships in terms of love. You're no longer loving from that tilted cup sideways. You're not just using your own resources because of the love that you've experienced. It's flowing out to even those hard-to-relate-to family members. And finally, evangelism. I'll end my thing with this. My dad used to really get on my nerves. When he found out that I was going to go to seminary, he was so deeply distressed. He wanted me to be like my younger brother, who went to Georgetown Law School. My younger brother recently retired as the number two guy in the Orange County DA's office. Successful career. And he said, what are you going to do, Fred? Well, I think God wants me to go to seminary. And then he told me. And since you're all mostly Asian here, you know what it's like growing up in an Asian family where they want you to succeed. He said to me, so you're going to go to seminary to do what? You're going to be a priest? He's not Christian. No, I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, I'll tell you what you're going to end up being, Fred. You're going to be a beggar. You're going to be a beggar. And I remember him saying this, and I thought, oh, man. It really hurt me deeply. I still went to seminary, um, but it was always something that just hurt me a lot. But I knew God did not want me to pick it out on my dad, nor rebel against my dad. So I, I, by the grace of God, I continued to be prayerful for my dad, loving him in the best way that I, that I experienced God's love. Fourteen years later, my dad came to Christ, and he shared his testimony. And my mom invited me to go to the worship service, and I listened. And my dad's sharing, and I thought, oh, man, I hope he doesn't say something stupid. I, I was really embarrassed for him, right? And, and he gets up there, and he says, and he got to this point about how he came to Christ. And he said, one of the things that really impacted me in terms of opening my heart to God was the witness of my son. And I, I looked up at that point, and he said, I treated him badly. I said all these bad things to him. And then he, start, he paused, and he's shaking. And he's shaking because he didn't want to start crying. And my dad's a proud second-generation Japanese-American. You don't cry as a male, right? And he's shaking. And I thought to myself, I'm going, Dad, don't start crying on me. <laughs> he composed himself. And then he said, all those bad things, he never retaliated. He never did anything to get revenge. That meant so much to me, and it opened my heart to God. Loving one another, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. It is a powerful, powerful tool of evangelism. And know this, 
just like when I went to a church was a non-believer. Non-believers can detect fake. But they will be impacted by the manifestation of God's love poured out to one another. Let me pray.